I've got something quite unusual for you today on The John Henry Weston Show. We don't often talk to politicians, but we've got one now. His name is John Gibbs. He's running in Michigan for Congress, and you're going to find him very interesting. He is not only someone who's willing to stand out, talk pro-life, pro-family, and against this ridiculous critical race theory, but he's willing to do so and run for Congress at the same time. That is someone unique. Stay tuned. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. John Gibbs, welcome to the program. John Henry, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. So this is very unusual. Most people who want to enter into politics think, well, I've got to hide what I really think. I've got to present the most likable face trying to see where the stats are on where the majority of the population lies and then sort of go out that way. You've chosen a different path. Why is that? Well, you know, I think we've got to tell the truth. I think we have to be people who are honest. And I think that when you look at what's happening in our country, there's been a growing divide between what regular people want and what the politicians have been doing. And part of the cause of that problem is exactly what you said, that the politicians will say one thing on the campaign trail, then do something else once they get in there. So I think we've got to go back into the direction of honesty and telling people what we really believe so that they know what they're getting. Um, my district, especially, we've had two betrayals. We had Justin Amash, um, who voted to impeach President Trump, for example. Then he left. And then we had Peter Meyer, my primary opponent, vote to impeach President Trump. Now he's on his way out. Um, so people feel like they've really been betrayed. And they feel like when politicians say something to them on the campaign trail, you know, they could just backstab them as soon as they get in there. And so I think it's important to have honesty and directness as we communicate. Now, of course, we do adjust our communication based on the audience. We never change what we believe, but we do uh, communicate differently so that the people we're talking to understand. So I think that is fair, but we, I want to always stay consistent in what I believe so that people know where I stand. Right. Now, your predecessor in his role, who, as you said, is on his way out, is one of those that's popularly called a rhino, a Republican in name only. Um, and this is, I guess, pretty popular among some. Your district, though, is, is quite conservative, if, uh, if memory serves. Tell me a little bit about that, and then, therefore, your hopes in going forward. Sure. So uh, just like uh, all other states around the country, we had redistricting happen um, here in January. So the district is new, and it is a little bit less conservative than it has been in the past. Uh, now, when you look at the numbers for the uh, uh, generic uh, ratings for each party right now, Republicans are up by quite a bit by historical amounts. So I think that translated into something like probably an R plus three or an R plus five for this district. So it's not necessarily a super huge plus R, but I think it will be. And what that means for me as I go out and I talk to voters is um, even independents and some Democrats will have to know that I'm going to represent them well. When you look at you know high gas prices, um, the price of uh, pork chops or chicken or whatever it might have you at the grocery store. When these things are twice as high as normal or 40% more than they are normally, that hurts everybody. It doesn't matter what party you belong to. So there's a wide variety of issues we can talk about that affect people on all sides of the political spectrum, no matter where you stand. And that's something I can do. In addition to talking about my uh, positions that are seen as more partisan, which really are not, such as protecting innocent babies from being murdered. Really, that doesn't matter what party you belong to, but it's seen in our society as a partisan issue. 
Um, I can talk about that. I can talk about other um, positions as well, which are more traditionally associated with my conservative beliefs. But I can talk to the middle. I can talk to even those those Democrats who are open to um, uh, being open-minded and considering something new. So in a district, that's going to be a little bit closer than it has been in the past. That'll be a priority for me to be able to speak to the middle as well as my own natural constituency on the right. Yeah. You seem very willing to speak on the hard issues, I guess you could say. You you mentioned your pro-life, you want to protect the babies. How would you go about presenting that to someone you don't know where they're coming from, you have a feeling they, they, they're not on, you know, they're not voting Republicans before. How would you speak to them about the issue of life? What I would say is um, I understand the difficulty of, well, I, I don't, I'm not a woman, but I can imagine the difficulty of facing an unwanted pregnancy. Um, so I don't want to belittle that at all. I know that's a serious thing that can happen in someone's life if it's unexpected. But there are options for that precious baby besides an abortion. There are so many couples who want adoption, tons and tons of people out there who want to adopt babies, and that's a great option, um, as well as um, you know, going to get an ultrasound and see that precious baby uh, moving around inside of the woman, I think is a great experience. I would encourage them to do that. Um, and think about innocent life. Um, a baby is innocent, has never hurt anyone, and doesn't deserve to be taken out of this world without having a say in it, him or herself. So we've got to protect innocent life. And I think that everybody, no matter where you stand, should be in favor of protecting innocent life. So I would say we've got to protect that baby. Um, that's that's something we that's non-negotiable. At the same time, I do understand the difficulty involved of an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, I can imagine the difficulty there. So we do want to have options available, such as adoption and um, even help with uh, child care in the initial stages, if that's um, an option. I know there's a pregnancy center near here that does that. They provide a wide array of services for women facing unwanted pregnancies that are alternatives to abortion that can make that transition into motherhood as easy as possible. So I think we should support those options as fully as we can, including adoption, um, while still saying at the end and still sticking firm to, we want that baby to be alive. We don't want an innocent human being and an innocent baby to be killed. So I think it's a matter of showing we understand the difficulty of the, the situation um, and we want to uh, keep that precious baby alive. Hmm. Beautiful. Unapologetically pro-life uh, and yet still able to appeal to a wide audience. And I think that's that's really a, a good cue for those aspiring to politics, a good way forward uh, where you don't compromise on your principles, but you learn the talk that enables you to talk to people on both sides of the aisle, as it were. Even more challenging than the life issue because with the life issue, the advent of ultrasound came in after Roe v. Wade, and now everybody knows it's a baby. We're looking at perhaps the overturning of Roe v. Wade right now, uh, very soon in the United States. But there's another issue that is really fraught with division in society, and that revolves around the LGBTQ issues. And you could go on with a few more uh, letters of the alphabet after that, if you will. But Nonetheless, that's an issue that is quite divisive. A lot of people wonder how to speak to that issue. As a politician, how do you speak to that issue? Well, you know, I, I kind of look at the way things are now, and I say that uh, people think of this race or every political race as Democrat versus Republican. I actually think the way things are going now, by November, it's going to be crazy versus normal. And I'm a normal guy, I would say, because you can't literally even say there's male and female anymore. Um, just saying that there is male and female is now considered controversial. There's 37 or 57 or however many um, they believe there are nowadays uh, genders. Whereas when I was in school, we literally learned there's XX chromosome and XY chromosome, and that defines male and female. That was taught to us as science when I was a child at school. 
So they want to get mad. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at my teachers when I was growing up in school. Um, Can Dungey so Brown a, might call you a biologist, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right, yes. Or I can always self-identify as a biologist uh, in that case. So, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so I, I really, it's, it's quite mind-boggling what's happening. We, of course, saw the Olympics with the, uh, the swimmer who was a uh, male who believed that he had transitioned to becoming a, a, a female and the whole issue is that call. So it, it's really difficult to wrap one's head around. I can't imagine what Martin Luther King and George Washington and people that came before us would think if they saw that we're having these issues in our society and people are getting threatened with being fired from their work for the basic belief that there is male and female. So I, I think that most voters are not going to get all of them. There are some who are way out there in the, in the planet Jupiter. Uh, but the vast majority of people, even independents and many Democrats, I think will concede that there is a male and female and everything that we do as a country and government policy should be based on that. Um, so that, that's the only thing I can say there is I, I, I think that's normal. <laughs> so uh, I just want to be normal. <laughs> Indeed. So another issue that's cropped up, especially of late in the United States, has been critical race theory. And, you know, as someone of color yourself, you can speak to that issue probably better than some others. What is your tack on that? in speaking to it and also with dealing with the flack that you'd get for being outspoken on the issue? Well, you know, this is another issue that I think is just crazy versus normal. Whatever happened to the idea that we judge a person based on their character, the way they love others, the way they treat others, where it seems like they're trying to push that aside and define someone based on their racial identity. So if you're black, that means you're automatically a victim. And if you're white, that means you're automatically guilty and everything else is based on these premises. It is a total insult to the legacy of civil rights, which said, judge a person by their character, not by race. Uh, I believe that race is being used as a tool to divide people. And I think that certain political actors out there see certain benefits from doing that. And so if they can say, um, all the problems you're facing are because of that guy over there. It makes it much easier to take the scrutiny off them and keep people divided and fighting each other instead of unifying as a people. So this critical race theory stuff is very treacherous. It's sinister. Um, it's divisive. Uh, it's based on lies. It is totally unfair because it judges someone based not on what they actually did, how they love and how they speak to others, but just based on their race alone, something which they have no control over. So it's got to be combated at every level. And I'm very willing to stand up and speak on it. And I know, as you said, John Henry, there are many people who can't do that as much as I can because I happen to be a minority. So I'm very willing to take up the slack there and stand on this issue because we've got to combat this uh, or else it's going to cause so much division in our society. That'll be a very sad thing to see. Speak to the issue of children. They are indoctrinated with a lot of these same beliefs we're talking about regarding life, regarding family issues, and regarding race issues. It's going on right now in the schools. What is your sort of take on that, your proposal for it? Yeah, there's so much indoctrination happening in the schools right now on every level. One of the beautiful things that's happened, despite the pain of seeing what the schools are doing, is the increased parental involvement. It is wonderful seeing those mama bears out there at the school board meetings who are standing up, speaking out, and, and having the radical idea, but not really radical, that we want to have a say in what our kids are learning. It is the people's taxpayer dollars that fund these schools, so the people have a right to have a say in that. And then the parents, of course, it's their own kids, so they have a right to have a say in that. So I think the real way forward here is letting the parents have more involvement in what's going on. And does that mean that the parents are micromanaging every aspect? No, but the parents do have a right to say, you're not going to teach pornography. You're not going to teach critical race theory. We find these things highly objectionable and offensive. Uh, so find another way of doing things. I think it's absolutely appropriate and fair and right for parents to stand up and say that. 
So I hope that this uh, whole uh, movement of the mama bears and the parents getting involved and being called domestic terrorists, by the way, by our attorney general, the absolute madness of such ridiculousness, um, you know, it's, it's crazy. But I hope that the parent involved, parental involvement uh, stays strong. And I think that's the way forward on this. Um, you, you shed some sunlight on these wacky theories that these folks in the ivory towers come up with, disseminate it through different uh, activist groups out there and get into the schools. That whole pipeline has got to be disrupted. And I think we're seeing, God willing, the beginnings of that process of disrupting uh, these sinister education agendas. Amen to that. In fact, I'm going to have you respond directly to the president. Uh, did you see the clip of the President Biden telling teachers that when their students are in the classroom, it's not their parents who are in charge, it's the teachers? Yeah. Have you seen that clip? Yeah, I think I did see that. Yes. We're going to, we'll, we'll play it after the fact, but if I can get you to comment on it now, that'd be great. Have our students gain confidence enough to know what they can do to reach in. We have an obligation. We have an obligation to help them teach and reach their potential. You've heard me say it many times about our children, but it's true. They're all our children. And the, the reason you're the teachers of the year is because you recognize that. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. I would say, President Biden, um, you need to have some humility. It is a parent's taxpayer money that pays those teachers' salaries. And while we, the taxpayers, have delegated to the teachers the job of teaching their children, um, that doesn't mean that it's 100% uh, full Joseph Stalin-style rule. The parents have a right to have a say. The parents have a right to intervene when things are going awry. And by the way, things have gone awry now. So, uh, Biden, you are wrong. Give the parents a say. Have some humility. We want our teachers to teach. We have delegated that job to them. But that is not infinite. When things are going off, we have a right to have a say. I'm not a parent myself, but the parents do have a right to have a say, and we are going to make our say, and we're not going to sit down. So, uh, President Biden, respectfully, have some humility and have some more respect for parents. Amazing. You've got a lot of deep convictions. Uh, can you tell us where those come from? Um, I would say largely my faith. Um, my parents raised me well. That was a huge influence on me, uh, of course. But, you know, my faith is where my convictions come from. As I over the years, have uh, have really learned and gotten deeper in my faith, and learned about the history of the church, um, more about uh, what the Bible says and what it means to walk with Christ. Uh, that has really informed my convictions and given me strength to stick to it, uh, even when getting attacked by CNN, for example. Uh, they've been doing that since 2018, which I consider a badge of honor. Um, and so it's it's uh, really a bedrock to have that faith, and um, as as it grows, it, it helps me to really stand strong even more of the challenges that, that come up. Beautiful. You were received into the church last Easter. Um, where did you come from? How did that happen? What enticed you to move toward the Catholic Church? Well, I was raised Pentecostal. Um, I kind of became a general purpose evangelical uh, after college. And I was actually an evangelical missionary in Japan. Um, oh, wow. Because I, even though my major at Stanford was computer science, I did study Japanese on the side. And I studied abroad in Japan, so I had the language under my belt. And at the church I was going to at the time, there was a class about missions, and I said, I think I want to do this. And Japan is less than 1% Christian. And so I said, I want to do missions in Japan. So I applied and uh, raised my money and uh, went over there and did mission work, which was, it was meaningful. Uh, Japan is tough ground. You don't see a lot of baptisms and conversions over there, so did that for a while. Um, but then as I came back uh, to America, did my master's at Harvard Kennedy School, 
um, because I realized the government was making things worse a bit faster than the good guys were making things better. So I needed to learn something about government. And so uh, I graduated from that and went into the Trump administration. And I started to think deeply about um, uh, several things. One is, for example, rapture mania. Uh, the concept of the rapture does not exist um, in traditional historic Christianity, but it does in, um, in a lot of American forms of Christianity. And I started to read about it. And it was basically invented by a British guy named John Nelson Darby and popularized in America by a guy named Cyrus Schofield. And so that was the first epiphany I had that some of what I believe is not actually the historic faith, which was created uh, by Christ and uh, and the, the early church and passed down. So I kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper and began a journey. Uh, one of my friends got baptized at uh, a big Episcopal church in New York City. That was my first liturgical service I ever went to. And I found that I really enjoyed it. So I came back to DC and uh, still continued to go to a high Anglican service. But as I learned more about King Henry VIII and how he declared himself to be the head of the church and what he did to the Catholic church there, I found that I couldn't be a part of it. And so I wanted to keep my journey going. So I said, well, what came before that? What was the foundation? And I realized um, what the Catholic church had done to build up England and the civilization there over the centuries. Um, it was quite a spectacular work. And I came to this realization being kind of a history geek that, you know, uh, being someone who attends the Latin mass, if I took a time machine back 1000 years and went to a church, it would be very, very similar to what I attend every Sunday. And that historical reality really means a lot to me. And I wanted to be a part of that continuity. You know, when you look back at Europe in the beginning, there's all these tribes, the Visigoths, the Saxons, the Celts, the Picts, and they're all fighting each other. And the church really came in there over time and unified them under one faith, one church, one baptism, and one universal language for the church, which was Latin. And that unified people to a huge degree and reduced the fighting and created peace. And I want to be part of that same movement that's been going on for 2,000 years. So looking back at the continuity of history, I said, I think this is good. I, I want to be a part of it. Wow. Wow. And ha have, how has it been for a, a little over a year? Um, have your hopes been realized? I would say so. Um, you know, it's always a learning experience. As, as a Catholic, we have a commitment to lifelong learning. Um, but yes, it's been uh, a great experience of, uh, you know, engaging the sacraments and engaging the sacrament of penance, for example, an examination of conscience, something I had not been used to in my previous uh, life. Uh, that is just, just a beautiful thing to really have a heart to heart check with ourselves and see where we are. That's something I really enjoy. Um, I'm loving the uh, divine office or liturgy of the hours. Uh, I've never had anything like that. So that is beautiful to be able to open up every day and have a specific set of prayers for that day. Uh, just open that up in the morning and, and go through it. So that is quite wonderful. Um, you know, one of my little pet peeves previously was these worship bands that have proliferated. And, uh, you know, it, they get up there and, and the focus often becomes on the band as opposed to the worship. But one thing I love about uh, the Catholic Mass is that if you have the scola singing Gregorian chants, you know, it's pretty much similar chants everywhere. And the priests are all wearing the same kind of clothing no matter what parish you go to. So there's no competition and trying to, you know, see who has the coolest hairstyle and who has the coolest hip leather jacket or what kind of jeans and shoes you're wearing to have the hippest appeal with your, your stuff. It's just, it's uniform and it's it's traditional. And, it, and you remove that, that selfish element of people wanting to be, you know, the number one and center of attention. I think that's very beautiful. So I'm really continuing to enjoy that. And I expect, you know, it's like, you know, peeling back layers of an onion or something. There's, there's always more to learn. There's always more of the saints to be reading. Uh, there's always more, um, you know, uh, issues that the church has done a great job of dealing with in the past that we can learn from today. Um, St. Augustine said the church is to the state what the soul is to the body. Um, I, I think that's a beautiful analogy and there's a whole lot to unpack there, especially as someone 
who worked in uh, the Trump administration for four years in the government and who, God willing, will be returning to government. There's just so much richness in how the church has dealt with that issue over the past 2000 years that I, I look forward to learning and unpacking. So it is a great journey, a lot of learning, um, a lot of just self-reflection, being able to look yourself in the mirror with Christ and say, uh, you know, help me to deal with this uh, issue and let's keep going forward. Amazing. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your time with President Trump because it's an interesting part of your background. I noticed with regard to President Trump, there's a lot of Catholic things going on. We had the first, I think the first ever, Ave Maria come from the White House. Um, we had all sorts of Catholic folks around Trump. Um, quite a few of my friends were involved with the Trump administration. Um, how did that go on and what did you feel when you were there? Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I think that President Trump is someone who, uh, who is loyal to the Christian community and very much so as well to the Catholic community. And I think when he looks at an issue like pro-life, what you see there when you look out at the landscape is it happens to be the Catholic groups that are the very aggressive and successful fighters there. And because President Trump is someone who recognizes results, he sees those results. Um, and I think that's why he has um, been enthusiastic about having involvement um, from the Catholic side and, and his efforts he's doing. And, you know, I would even say in my own personal experience being in the administration, um, one of the reasons I chose to become Catholic in my journey is that the is that my colleagues who were Catholic were, were excellent in their ability to understand policy, to modify policy and uh, get things through the process, so much so that I, uh, it really caught my attention. And so I would have these conversations at lunch with my Catholic colleagues at length asking about, uh, you know, uh, the ecumenical councils, uh, infallibility and in extraordinary magisterium versus ordinary magisterium and all those things, trying to get a grip on how they are, tend to be very good at, at analyzing policy and coming up with policy um, a little bit more than uh, certain other groups out there. So uh, my sponsor, for example, was one of my colleagues, in fact, who I have those conversations with. So um, yes, I, I think what you're saying is exactly true. There's There really is something there to uh, a strong Catholic presence in our administration that was effective at, at policy uh, because the Catholic Church, like I said, has a history of dealing with government that I think trickles up, if you will, to, uh, to Catholics who go into the legal profession. And so you see those excellent results produced there. So yeah, I think that, that was definitely true in our administration. You know, John, I would love to conclude uh, with you giving us a verse of scripture or something like that in Japanese, because if you still have that with you and can still command over that language, that would be awesome. Sure. Yeah, we'll give John 3.16 a try here. That is John 316. Awesome. Amazing. John, where can people get in touch with you with your campaign and how can they support you? People can get in touch at votejohngibbs.com. That's votejohngibbs.com. Uh, we appreciate your prayers first and foremost. We need the Lord's protection and guidance um, over every aspect uh, in order to prevail here. Uh, we also need your uh, financial partnership. I'm up against a billion, billionaire here. Uh, his money won't let him win this time. We know that, but I do need enough to get my name out there. The polls show that I'm up by 20 points when, voter knows, when voters know that I'm uh, endorsed by President Trump. Uh, so that's good news. But I do need to get my name out there to all those voters. So um, uh, the financial part's important, as well as volunteering. For those who can uh, knock doors or make phone calls, you can go ahead and do that on our website as well. But yeah, first and foremost, prayers and then uh, financial partnership, if you can, at votejohngibbs.com. I think this is going to be a great journey. And I've been told that if I win by someone who is relatively in the know on these things, 
I might be the only member of Congress that attends a traditional Latin mass. So that in of itself, I think, is was worthy of uh, excitement. So yeah, that's it. Exactly. John Gibbs, thank you for being with us on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. Thank you so much, John Henry. I really appreciate having me on. God bless you. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time.